Good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you, and we will find ourselves in um, 1 Corinthians to begin with. Uh, we'll go through many texts today um, that will be on the screen behind me, but right now we're just going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and then we will uh, pray and spend some time thinking about God's Word and asking for God's heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a row near you. If you don't own a Bible, um, we have some that are giveaways out in the foyer on the bookshelves that we would love for you to take as our gift to you. Right now we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And then I'll pray. The Word of God says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in these moments that You would touch us in a profound way. That we would long for Your heart and to be obedient to Your Word more than maybe ever before. Father, I ask that You would move in significant power to bring clarity to Your Word and clarity to what love looks like. Father, we pray that You would give us a sense of not just submission to Your Word, but glad-hearted submission to Your Word. We ask that it would be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And that, God, You would hide it deeper than our hearts so that we might not sin against You. Change us in these moments. Make us a community of faith and love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This week, the CEO of one of the world's most popular, popular and lucrative companies, Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, went public that he is gay. He, like Michael Sam, uh, who attempted to make the NFL, Jason Collins with the NBA, and many others, took this kind of bold step against years of cultural estrangement and declared that publicly that they are gay. This week, when Tim Cook announced this in an interview with USA Today, he stated that being gay was the best gift God had ever given him. And we hear this and we begin to wonder, how are we supposed to feel? What are we supposed to think? Well, there actually are some things we can commend, I think. We surely can commend boldness. We can be thankful that he doesn't have to live a life of secrecy but he can be public in that sense that he doesn't have to live two lives. We can be thankful that he is against violence in what many who live the gay lifestyle call a homophobic society. It seems like it will be good for his business the way it is written about him and that he really wants to stop aggression towards people in his company. But these do not address the question, is this lifestyle right or wrong? None of these commendations address the question, are these part of God's desire or design or not? 
And this is what we must be able to do. We must be able to commend what we can commend, but ultimately ask, what does God's Word say and how can we communicate God's heart? Not just the culture's, but God's. And so today, as I've been praying, the two main things that I want to get across is that we would communicate clearly God's Word and God's heart of love. And to do that, we're going to address four things. One is what God says about our world and His glory. Number two, what God says about the active lifestyle of homosexuality. Three, what God says about the desire of same-sex attraction. And four, what God says about those, about those individuals themselves who struggle with same-sex Attraction. So maybe you'll pick up on it and maybe you won't, but ultimately this outline might help you understand what I will address and what I will not. And ultimately I will not address at any length to speak of same-sex marriage. And you might find that surprising. <laughs> it might be the only reason you're here. But I do believe that is more of a political issue and that there are so many opinions about it. Interestingly enough, even so many opinions within the gay community itself. I found an article in the BBC World News. The article goes like this. It speaks of a man named Jonathan Soroff, a man who is, uh, lives an active homosexual lifestyle. The article reads, Jonathan Soroff lives in liberal Massachusetts with his male partner Sam. He doesn't fit the common stereotype of an opponent of gay marriage, but like half of his friends, he does not believe that couples of the same gender should marry. He said, we're not going to procreate as a couple. And while the desire to demonstrate commitment might be laudable, the religious traditions that have accommodated same-sex couples have had to do some fairly major contortions. Some lesbians oppose marriage on feminist grounds. A woman named Claudia Card believes that to try to force same-sex couples into marriage is to force an institution that ultimately serves the interest of men more than women. And so arguments against gay marriage by those who practice an active gay lifestyle are the following. That what's more important than marriage are the rights. Number two, is that marriage is a heteronormative institution and historically has marginalized homosexuality. Which means it's more normative to be married as heterosexuals than to be married as homosexuals. And homosexuals have regularly been estranged from the whole concept of marriage. Number three, marriage is between a man and a woman and that's the best environment for children. Gay, practicing gay individuals also say that it is a patriarchal and flawed institution. And they will cite that in countries that have just civil partnerships do not legalize gay marriage. They say that the gay people say that that is enough. What is striking though is how the article ends. It ends with this, quote, I'm not concerned about whether I get married, but whether I will die in the streets at the hands of homophobes. And it is at that point that I believe we all should agree. I think we all should agree that the violence has been tragic and the hatred has been deplorable. Violence towards individuals and hatred towards individuals are tragic and deplorable. But to me, too many Christians have wasted their prophetic voice by spending the majority of their time on same-sex marriage and not enough time on hating violence, communicating God's truth, and loving those with same-sex attraction. And so today, that is my aim. To communicate clearly God's Word, for as we know His Word... We know what love is. And to communicate clearly God's heart. 
which we will find in the Word of God. So by now, if you're a guest with us, you might understand a few things. First of all, you're in a Christian worship service. I'm a, I'm a pastor uh, by trade, and so you know that I'm coming from a biblical worldview. The Bible shapes my worldview, and I'm unashamedly a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian in the room, I just plead with you to hear me out and to bear with me. But I want to say this to you, if you struggle with same-sex attraction or if you live in a homosexual lifestyle, I want you to know that I can say that I love you and I care for you and more importantly, God does. And so, as we draw together, I just ask that you would stick with me. Because ultimately, if your system of beliefs cannot last the 40 minutes left in this message, then you probably should question your beliefs and get a new set. And so what we're aiming for here is to understand what God's Word says clearly and what is His heart of love. Now, we have to kind of begin to define terms. Because when someone says gay or homosexual, they can mean all kinds of things. Gay can be communicated by some as a sense of identity. That that's who I am as an identity. For others, it means that I struggle with same-sex attraction. But I don't live out that lifestyle. And for others, to say that I'm gay means that I live out my same-sex attraction in sexual intercourse with those of the same sex. And so we need to understand and ask what people mean by the terms that they're using. If they say that I'm homosexual, we must begin to ask that question. Are you just saying you have desires for those of the same sex? Or are you living an active lifestyle or desire or pursuing those things? What is crucial is that these terms must be clear. They must be clear for us today. But as we come to the Bible... And we really want to get what God says in His heart. We must understand something else. Is that in our culture, commands are bad things. Commands ultimately are bad. Rules restrict, right? But no one wants complete anarchy. And just look at parents. Even some of those who hate this concept of Rules will tell their child, do not run out into the street in front of that car. Now, why would they do that? Because they love rules? No, because they love the child. And when a parent looks at a child and they say, eat your food, they're not doing it just because they love rules, but they don't want the kid to starve to death. Love is what's being communicated, not just a fascination with rules. And so one of the greatest schemes of the devil is to begin to separate holiness and happiness. To separate submission to God and His Word and His commands and satisfaction. Because if he can get that away, then we will not submit ourselves to God and we will seek for happiness elsewhere. But what the Scriptures begin to point out is God's commands are from a heart of love, are for our good, and ultimately whatever aligns ourselves with Him and His ways is the happiest path that we could ever take. So when we hear commands, which we will read today in the Scriptures, they have to be informed by a biblical worldview, by God's understandings of commands, not our cultures. And so that drives us into the first point. What God says about our world and His glory. If you don't hear anything else today, the most important thing I will say is what I say right now at the beginning. Because it lays a foundation. Ultimately, a foundation of how God has created the world and the worldview that God wants us to come at everything with. And that worldview begins with we believe in a Creator God who made everything for His own glory. And the height of our joy and the depth of our full satisfaction is when we live for His fame and to make Him great. 
Anything that pulls away from His glory will diminish our joy and will ultimately prove to be a leaky well that will not satisfy. And so the height of our joy is found when we live for and submit our lives to God. Yet humanity at the beginning with Adam and Eve, they chose to rebel against God. They chose to disobey Him, to ultimately stick their foot in His face, to try to dethrone Him and put themselves there, listening to the devil and not listening to their gracious God. So rather than living for His abundant provision... Rather than eating from the tree of life, which would give them life eternal in the presence of their great God, they chose to disobey the one command that He gave them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in so doing, you will surely die. And instead, they rebelled against God. And now everything is unraveling. The Scriptures talk about that creation, not just us, but even creation itself, from people to mountains to birds, they are groaning for Jesus to return and to set all wrongs right. Experiencing cancer, Ebola, tornadoes, hurricanes, communication struggles, sexual frustration, unfulfilled desires, everything is a result of humanity's rebellion against God. And just as the murderer or rapist deserve their just sentence for violating another, we too, everyone, deserves the just sentence for committing high treason against God. For declaring mutiny against Him and placing ourselves above and over Him. And everyone is guilty. And the punishment for our sin is His wrath should be poured upon us. An eternal separation away from Him forever. An eternal judgment and torment called hell. Something that's not just figurative, but literal. Separation from God. That is our just punishment. And yet, God said, I love my glory and I love my, ch- my people so much that I will give my one and only Son to live the life they couldn't live, to die the death that they deserve, so that anyone who would trust in Jesus might be set free from sin. And what Revelation 1 says, might know the love of God towards them. This is, this is what we all need. We need to submit our lives wholly to Jesus Christ and trust Him with our lives. And that if He did not stay dead but overcame the grave, He is powerful enough to work within us to get us to the end, to get us to see Him face to face. So hear this. To call yourself a sinner is what opens the door for you to experience God's love in a deeper way than you have ever experienced it before. Because the biblical worldview says Jesus came to die for sinners. And that is love. So if you take yourself out of the sinner category, then you take yourself out of experiencing what God says is the ultimate picture of love that I gave my only Son for you, sinner. It's totally, ironically flipped upside down from what our culture says. Many will say love is not owning sin. It is saying what's good for you is good for you, what's good for you is good for you, and we're all just going to live happy. No! The biblical worldview says we are sinners, gripped by sin, dominated by sin, and therefore we need to trust Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we will know God's love for us. So, that's the world in which He's created. The world in which He's created it for His glory. 
So we must submit our lives to Him and trust in Him. Anyone who trusts in Him will have eternity with Him. And anyone who trusts in Him will live out and live under His commandments. And so now we need to jump jump to number two. Not only what does God say about the world and His glory, but what does God say about the active lifestyle of homosexuality. And now we dive into our passage today, which will also lead us to many other passages. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 begins to lay out specific sins, what he calls unrighteousness. He says these are deceiving, and we know who the father of deceit is. It is the devil. He names them sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thieves, greediness, drunkenness, reviling, swindling. None will inherit the kingdom of God. And yet the next verse communicates so much love that there's hope. And such were some of you. From the beginning of this passage communicates the love of God. Now, what we know in reading the Gospels is Jesus was crazy patient with sinners. He was actually more aggressive against the religious of His day than He was the tax collectors and sinners. He ate with them. He spent time with the woman at the well who had five husbands. However, His patience was never meant to be confused with affirming their lifestyle. Instead, He actually forgave them who repented. So in Jesus' patience, He has a category for walking around with sinners, but wanting them to know their sinners and forgiving them of their sins. And still being patient. His patience doesn't mean acceptance of actions, but loving individuals towards repentance. And that's what this passage highlights. It highlights not just God's patience, but also the need for repentance from those who live contrary to God's ways. Now, when you approach this text, there are some who really don't give a rip that I go to the Bible because they don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, and so they will allow feelings or culture to define what they think is right and wrong. However, what we are doing is we're coming to the Bible as the Word of God, and there are two categories ultimately of people who still want to say the Bible is the Word of God and then want to live. One is that they say the Bible is the Word of God, and yet they want their homosexual lifestyle to say it accords and doesn't contradict Christianity. And so as we read through these passages, we will need to address not just some of you in the room who believe that the Bible is God's Word and it says that practicing a homosexual lifestyle is against God's ways and will lead to not inheriting the kingdom of God. But we also must address those who say, I want to submit to God's ways and I believe God's Word doesn't condemn the active practice of homosexuality. Ultimately, those who say the latter, that being gay and living in a gay lifestyle is not in contradiction to the Bible, will ultimately want to say that the passages that deal with this subject were culturally relegated. That means they had to do with the culture of that time. And so therefore, they have no concept of a monogamous, that means just one partner, consensual, rather than against consent, loving, they will say, same-sex relationship. They will say that that's foreign to the Bible and therefore these passages don't apply to us today and therefore it's not in contradiction with... Living a gay lifestyle is not in contradiction with Christianity. Now, what we want to do then is we want to look at the passage... The passage says this, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he gives the list. There's something remarkable about the list. There is no hierarchy given for sins. It does not say reviling is worse than adultery or sexual immorality is worse than being greedy 
Or drunkenness is worse than same-sex intercourse. It just lifts the sins. Many, many, many in churches today villainize someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and those who live in a homosexual lifestyle, taking it as if that sin is not equal to your sin. And isn't it remarkable how when we might not struggle with a certain sin, we can get really self-righteous and really upset at those who do, but when we do struggle with a sin, we get all of a sudden crazy patient with ourselves. And we minimize the severity. The point of creating no hierarchy is that not that we should minimize the sin, but that we should be aggressive and hate all of these. For they all lead to separation from God. And so when he lists these passages, he calls them all opportunities for deceit. He calls them all unrighteousness. That means you who struggle with sexual immorality. That means pornography. That means lusting for someone outside of your marriage. That means flirting. Even though you're in a marriage context. Flirting with someone else who's not your spouse. He also goes on to say, nor idolaters, those who literally bow themselves down to idols. Those who erect another God in their lives other than the one Creator God. Nor adulterers, those who cheat on their spouses and are not faithful to one man, one woman in marriage for life. Nor men, it says, who practice homosexuality, which we will deal with in a second. It says, nor thieves... Those who steal, covet, long for something that's not theirs and go after it. Nor the greedy, let money rise up to a level of God for them. Nor drunkards, those who give themselves to drunkenness. Nor revilers, those who find hatred in their heart for someone who's done something against them. Or swindlers, those who just try to take what's not theirs. Every one of these are meant to shock the heart into a hatred for a pattern of sin. This is what this is. It's not saying if you've done this once, you're going to hell. It's saying that these patterns of sin must be repented of. And Christ must be embraced. Well, now we need to address though what in the world is being talked about in verse 9 when it says, nor men who practice homosexuality. This actually in the Greek is two words. And I'm going to give you the Greek words because if you go online, there are some who try to be advocates that you can live in an active uh, homosexual lifestyle and still be a Christian. That those are not in contradictory in contradiction and they will bring these words up. And so I want to bring these words to your attention. The first word is malakoi, and the second one is arsenikoitai. Okay? You blessed? Good. Figured that would do it for you. The first one is malakoi. Malakoi literally means soft. In that culture, historically, and in the context for Paul, it means effeminate, and ultimately, not just effeminate, it means the passive partner in same-sex intercourse. The second word, arsenikoitai, it means the active partner in same-sex intercourse, which is why the translators feel the freedom to say men who practice homosexuality. Now, for some, that might feel like an open and shut case that this is against what God would have. But we have to understand a few things. Those who say that being a gay person and living out that lifestyle and Christianity are not in contradiction, they will say that this is culturally relegated because in that culture, something called pedestry was extremely popular. Which is, if you might hear the idea of pedophile, in that pedestry is when men would have sex with young boys in that culture. And those young boys would be like prostitutes 
for these men. And so, these proponents that you can live a gay lifestyle and still be a Christian, they would say, of course, everybody's against that. The Bible's only speaking to that. It's not speaking to man on man, and it's not speaking to this monogamous, consensual, loving thing that I'm talking about. And yet there are some that realize this is still not enough. You can't just lump it out as something having to do with that culture solely. A professor at Duke, his name is Dan Ovia. I read um, a portion of a book by him and Matthew Vines, both of them trying to make the case that you can be gay and that you can be a Christian and those are not in contradiction. They both readily admit that the Bible undeniably has a negative view towards same-sex sex. The problem is, is they say that it has to do with a cultural ignorance to what is now a new phenomenon of monogamous, consensual, loving relationship, and that ultimately it was addressing this issue of men having sex with boys. Well, the Greek culture regularly goes against that concept when they would say, in writings that you would read, they would say that really though, these men would wait until these boys got older, until they were in manhood, and that's when usually they would pursue them. Even though it did happen between man and boy, they would wait until the boy became an adult in many cases. And then you have Romans one twenty six. Romans one twenty six and 27 does not allow this to be thrown off in culture and say this is just about sex between men and boys, but that there has to be a category of sex between man and man and woman and woman that is abhorrent to God, is against God's design and God's desire. Romans one twenty six. And 27 say this, For this reason God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here you see it's not just men and boys. It's now women with women, men with men. And these things are said to be um, against God's way and will word. However, they still want to say those who want to hold same-sex, living out a same-sex lifestyle and Christianity are not in contradiction. They still want to say that you can throw this off on culture because it doesn't have this concept of the monogamous, consensual, loving relationship. And it just doesn't hold up with 1 Timothy chapter 1, 8 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11 doesn't allow it because it includes sexual immorality and homosexuality underneath the banner of the seventh commandment given in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And here's why that's important. In the New Testament... Jesus clearly addresses adultery and sexual immorality in general as a as a general category, and he reinstitutes the ten or nine of the ten commandments except for the Sabbath. Okay, if Jesus reinstitutes them, he says that it's not culturally bound; it's close to the heart of God, and it is binding upon all believers. And so. Is homosexuality connected to these Ten Commandments, these things that are reiterated by Jesus and therefore binding upon the church? Yes, look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11. through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. These who go against God, the ungodly, The law was given to define sin for people so that when they sinned, they would know what in the world they were doing and they would know it was against God and God would therefore say, you must stop this or you will be punished. But what is remarkable now is He takes commandment 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 and He broadens their definition and it directly affects our discussion today. So you see, 
for those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's commandment five, right? Honor your father and mother. For murderers, that's commandment six, thou shalt not kill. The sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, that's commandment seven, do not commit adultery. Enslavers, that's commandment eight, because ultimately what it was was to steal people or to steal kids, like kidnapping. Thou shalt not steal. And then liars and perjurers, that's commandment nine. Do not lie or bear false witness. These are directly lined up with the Ten Commandments because He wants them to be really clear that they are not relegated to culture, but that they come across in the teachings of Jesus and in those who follow the teachings of Jesus and who teach Jesus' people that God hasn't changed in this area. These are close to His heart. And therefore, when Jesus talks about the sin of sexual immorality, it would have not just included adultery, that is, a spouse cheating on another spouse, or just heterosexual lust, but any type of same sexual relationship as breaking his commands. And therefore, if we have these passages in the New Testament that clearly speak not only to that culture, but speak to what's at the core of God's heart, at the core of his design, at the core of his character, then it sheds massive light on the Old Testament passages. There are six total passages in the, New Te- in the Bible that address this issue of uh, homosexuality. And now there are three in the Old Testament. We can look at it in Genesis 19, 4 through 8. In Genesis 19, 4 through 8, what you have is a horrific scene. A horrific scene with the city of Sodom. And they are judged for their sin. And so the story goes, there are two men that go into the city of Sodom to rescue Lot from this unrighteous city. And they're going to pull him out, and then judgment is going to come upon Sodom. And so the story goes, verse 4 of Genesis 19. But before they laid down, the men of the city, that is the men of Sodom, both young and old, which shows this is a generational issue, all the people to the last man, everybody, every man in the city, they surrounded the house. And then they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That is known universally as that we might have sex with them. That's how the Bible talks about it. And Lot went outside, out to the men at the entrance and shut the door behind them and said, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Well, you might ask, well, what is the wickedness? Of course, it's the forcing of sex upon someone who doesn't want it. But look at Lot's alternative. He says, don't do it to these men which shows that it was at the core of the problem was same-sex intercourse. Here, I will give you my two daughters, which is equally foolish and abhorrent. But it also shows what the wickedness was in that culture and what the wickedness was to God. It had to do with the same-sex nature of it. And so... Some individuals who read this passage want to deny the same-sex nature of it, only talk about the aggression of it, and will cite Ezekiel 16, 47 and 49 as the summary of why Sodom was judged. Why was Sodom judged? And so you read Ezekiel 16:47, and he says this about the people of God. They were acting like Sodom. He says, not only did you walk in Sodom's ways and do according to their abominations, within very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. This was the guilt, verse 49, of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride excess food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Why was Sodom judged? Why was Lot rescued and then fire and sulfur rained down on Sodom? They will say because they were not generous to the poor. They were filled with pride and they lived in excess abundance. But we must go on. The verse says this, That's not the only reason. It says they were haughty. 
and they did an abomination before me. And when I saw, God says, that abomination, that act of abomination, I removed them and judged them. What is that act of abomination? The first time the word abomination is used towards the people of Israel is in Leviticus 18.22, which says this, But you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And Leviticus 20.13 is the next time, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, and their blood is upon them. These three passages only underscore why these passages of against homosexual living out a homosexual lifestyle are in the New Testament. It is close to the heart of God. It is against His design. Now, some to be fair, some to be fair will say, sure, it's called an abomination in the Old Testament, but those are connected to laws given to Israel. And there are other things that are connected there too, like a man should not sleep with a woman on her menstrual cycle. That's an abomination. And don't eat unclean food, for that is an abomination. And they say that when Christ came to fulfill the law, those things were binding on Israel. They're not binding on us. And therefore, He's not condemning homosexuality. What I'm hoping that you have seen so far is that this isn't culturally relegated. It has been mentioned throughout the New Testament, reiterated as part of God's design and desire. And this is different in that it is against not just culture, but it is based upon God's design as seen in Romans 1. And it's against God's long-standing commands that were built upon His character that we see in 1 Timothy 1. So that is why he explains, if we go back to Romans 1, verse 24 and 25, that their same-sex relations are not just the mild forms of physical actions of love, but they are spiritual missteps that speak massive volumes about the corruptness of the heart. These actions of same-sex intercourse are not just physical actions. They speak volumes about the heart. That's why he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, God gave them up in their lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What is an example of trading Creator for creation? He goes on, the next verse. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. How do they exchange the Creator? For creation, they don't live according to the Creator's design. They don't pursue a heterosexual marriage. They pursue same-sex intercourse. And that is trading. Creator for creation. It is lying. It is worshiping creation over Creator. Now, those who still want to try to bring these two together and say you can still be gay and be a Christian, want to try to neutralize those six passages. But friends, this is a very helpful understanding when it comes to how you know something is right or wrong. You cannot just argue to the level of neutrality or to maybe and just cast a little bit of doubt or probability or possibility. You have to argue to the level of probability. 
And the probability in all of those passages is that God is against the perversion of His design when people of the same sex are invested in sexual intercourse and in those sexual relationships. Not to mention, there's not just six passages that deal, that deal with it, right? What about Genesis 1 when He made male and female and He created them to be married? What about all the passages that talk about the idea of marriage that assume if you burn with sexual immorality, you marry, you marry a man marries a woman. And a woman marries a man. Friends, ultimately, this is historical and biblical blindness that seeks to try to make two things that are not in agreement try to agree. And so the commands in the Scriptures are clear. God has designed sex and our bodies and even procreation and He has laid it out in His commands that sex should be saved for marriage between a man and a woman. And anything else is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Worshipping the creation rather than the Creator. Now, if you struggle in this room with same-sex attraction, I want you to not be crushed in guilt and shame. Because that's why the passage says what it does. You can almost see in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul looking at these individuals who might be crushed by the weight of their sin. Homosexual sin, heterosexual sin, thievery, greedy, whatever, might be crushed by it. And I can almost see like with tears in his eyes, he says, and such were some of you. There's an answer to the guilt and shame. It's the washing of the blood of Jesus. It's when He comes into your life, He sets you apart as His, and He declares you not guilty, and He makes you His child. This passage means that change is possible. But friends, I want to hold out that although it's possible, it might not be like you think. And that takes us to our third point. What God says, not only about the active lifestyle of homosexuality, but what God says about the desire of same-sex attraction. Some of you, when you hear the, the concept of change is possible, you hear eradication of all same-sex desires. But is that what happened in your life? When you were saved, did you lose all struggle with sin? No, you didn't. It might be different than this sin, but every one of us are in a battle. And yet, we many times as a Christian community want to say, Change for this individual is the total eradication of these desires. That might happen, but it is not the norm. Just like you might be delivered from any desire for alcohol if you were an alcoholic, but that's not the norm. The desire of same-sex attraction... Therefore, is not sin, but giving into it or acting on it is. And language is extremely important here. So hear me. Homosexual attraction is a result of the fall. It is a broken affection. But so is your bent towards anger and anxiety and heterosexual lust. All of it is a result of the fall. Every bit of it. It's a, they are broken affections. They are broken desires. However, when you get anxious, when the heart of anxiety just attacks you out of nowhere, have you experienced it? I have. When it attacks you out of nowhere, the fact that your heart got anxious is not sin. 
It's what you do with that temptation is whether it becomes sin or not. When you're tempted to anger, it's not the fact that the anger hits the heart. It's what do you do with that? And James spells it out clearly. James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's the desires of our heart that are sins. It's not other things outside of us that are causing us to sin. It's the desires in our heart. But listen, it's the desire, it says, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. When you not only say, hey, that person's attractive, but you begin to fantasize. You begin to lust. You begin to pursue want a relationship with. It's not that the anxiety comes. It's, do you just meditate on these things over and over? Do you just constantly worry? you begin to future forecast and try to predict everything with your anxiety? Or do you do like Ed Welch says, it's like a string around the finger, that when that desire for anxiety comes, it's meant to press you deeper into God and say, God is present. God loves. God cares. God knows. When the desire comes, it's meant to raise up the alert alarms for... It's a fight. The fight is on. The fight for faith. So disposition or bent is not sin. What you do with it can or cannot be sin. We must fight against sinful dispositions. We all have different dispositions, different bents. And they could have been with us our entire lives. I know in my family there is a disposition or bent towards addictive drink, alcoholics. And so for me, the alert system's up. I'm on my guard there. Because I have maybe a disposition towards it doesn't mean I am destined to sin in that way. And it doesn't mean it can't be fought against. Desire gives birth to sin. And sin unchecked gives birth to death. That's what James says. And so, the second point besides desire of same-sex attraction is not sin but giving into it or acting on it is, is that same-sex desires must be fought against. Now, I was reading a book um, on a guy uh, by, named Richard Hayes. He is a professor at Duke University. He's written a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. And he asked this question, can you be gay and be a part of the church? And he says, absolutely. And you'd be like, whoa, what does he mean by that? Or at least that's what you should ask. What does he mean by gay? Remember how we started? Define your terms. What he means by gay is you can experience same-sex attraction and still be a part of the church. When he's asked, is that person free to embrace that lifestyle and live in the context of that in the church? Absolutely not. Do we have a category where church is a culture of strugglers? Do we have a category where we invite those who are experiencing emotional pain and we don't say sin is okay, but we say it's okay to talk about it, to bring it before one another, and we're going to fight against this together? Nick Rowan, a man who battles with same-sex attraction, has written an article. And at the end of the article, he says this, Experiencing same-sex attraction is not the same as sinning. 
Rather, same-sex attractions should be treated like any temptation to sin. They should be fought with blood earnestness, I love that phrase, in a way that recognizes the deceitfulness of the heart and the finitude of the mind. When I do this, when I fight temptation, turn to Jesus, trust His promises, rely on His Spirit, God is pleased. And here's a beautiful phrase. He is not mainly displeased because I need to fight. But He is pleased because I'm fighting. Do you have that picture of God? Do you have one where He's just scowling at you that, oh, you got to fight against it again? Or do you have one that who's looking at you in love because He gave His Son for you and says, I'm so thankful you're fighting. It's showing my work within you. Rowan goes on to say, This is good news for all of us who experience all manner of temptations. May this fact lead us, no matter our particular groaning, and His is same-sex attraction, may it lead us to rest in Jesus more deeply, fight temptation more fiercely, and look forward to the day when our fight will result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, we were meant for another world, another day. So, when we hear these things, although same-sex attraction is not sin, the Bible clearly lays out the only healthy expressions of sexual desire is heterosexual marriage or celibacy. Many who struggle with same-sex attraction will just say, that's just too much. You're telling me I have to deny myself and deny my desires in order to be a Christian. And David Pallison says it so beautifully. He says, living with unfulfilled desires is not the exception to the Christian walk, but the rule. Every one of us deny ourselves. The person who wants that relationship outside their marriage must deny themselves those lusts. The one who wants to force themselves even on their spouse sexually must deny themselves that sense of non-loving sex. The one who is greedy and wants that money must deny themselves of just getting that money. We have to live with it all the time. This is why C.S. Lewis says what he says. That if you find in this world an experience that leaves you longing and unfulfilled, it means you're probably created for another world. And we are. We're created for the presence of Jesus. Our sin has corrupted and corroded our world. But let's be fair. Some who struggle with same-sex attraction, they might say, but if your struggle is heterosexual lust at least you get an opportunity to live that out in a marriage context. I don't have any release. And that is true. But we must be crystal clear that externals do not ultimately solve the cravings of the human heart. Ask the heterosexual male who marries in hope of solving his masturbation and pornography problem. And then after he gets married, he still struggles with masturbation and pornography. Because just having the sexual outlet didn't solve the heart issue, the desires of the heart that lure and entice and pull away. And what about that woman who was going to get married because she craves security and safety? And so she married to find that in her husband. And when he could not deliver... She still found herself anxious and longing for security in her looks and in her value. Our desires, our cravings are not solved by externals. They're solved by Jesus. They're solved by Him. And there's something else, friends. Our culture has so perverted what the climax of relationship is. Sex is not the climax of relationship. Friendship is. If that's not the truth, then there is no way He could commend people to be single. And if that's not the truth, then there would have to be sex in heaven. And I have news for you. 
sex will pale in comparison to the pleasure you will experience on the day that you are in the presence of the living Christ. It is only a foretaste of what is to come. And it's because sex is not the ultimate of relationship. Friendship is. And Sigmund Freud has so poisoned the mind of the Western culture to in his psychoanalysis say that all of us suffer with some Oedipus complex where we have some suppressed sexual desires and that's what is dictating all of our actions and our identity is ultimately based upon our sexuality. It's garbage. But our Western... And even those in the psychoanalytic world say it's garbage. But they say for some reason it has been embraced by the Western culture. And that is why when those who really want to justify their lifestyle, they read the Bible, they look for any opportunity to see a same-sex relationship to justify their own. And so where will they go? They'll go to Jonathan and David. When in 2 Samuel 1.26, David says, Your love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And they'll say, there you go. They were involved in a same-sex relationship, and therefore it's okay. Do we not have another concept? That there is something about those made in the image of God, giving glory to God together, that brings people together, that gives them an experience of desire that is far greater than sexual intercourse? It's friendship. It's intimacy with Christ. And I guarantee you this. When you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that desire is a greater desire, a more lasting desire, than any sexual encounter will and can ever give you. And so then, friends, if that's what God says, what does He now look at us and say to those who struggle with same-sex attraction? It's in a paragraph, and it's this. You are not identified by your sexual orientation. Your identity is whether you are in Christ or not. It's not in how well you perform sexually or in a job. It is whose are you? You are Christ. Isn't it beautiful in 1 Corinthians 6? He gives this list of all these external actions, and then he says, and this is who you were, and he talks about something that happens in the heart. He says, you've been categorically changed, and your change is an identity before it's a behavior. And once your identity at its core has been changed, once your heart has been revolutionized, turned upside down, your allegiance is in Christ, your behavior will change. But when your identity is based upon your sexual orientation, then you will be forced in many ways to constantly question yourself, constantly feel like you have to hide in terms of some cultures and not other cultures. Your whole identity will be based upon your performance. And when you do well, you'll be happy. When you don't do well, you'll be crushed. Your identity is that you are a child of the King. That is who you really are. You are a child and you struggle and you fight, but your fight does not define you. Your sexual orientation is not your orientation. Your orientation is that you are now desiring Jesus if you are His. He's changed your bent. And friends, David White says this in a little booklet. He says, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, it's holiness. Just like the opposite of your anger or your anxiety or your heterosexual lust, it's not the antithesis of that. It is pressing deeper into God. When you are defined by God Himself, you stop defining yourself as to what you are not and you define yourself as to who you are in Christ. Holiness is our pursuit. Change, true change is that every person needs. Not a greater understanding of their sexuality. Every person needs a whole person being conformed to the image of God. And so church, we must be a community 
that is not casual towards sin. We must fight against sin and pursue Jesus and grope for faith. But we must be a community that loves people in patience, with weakness, and foster a culture of openness and dialogue about our struggles. Not a culture that's closed off to those who have difficulties or experiencing mess in life. Oh, that God would help us to identify ourselves by whose we are and be such a community that we can bear with one another in our struggles and people don't have to hide anymore. We can be a family. Pursuing Christ, hating sin, working together to look like Him. Let's pray. Father, I ask, I ask that You would work in our hearts in this very moment to love what You love and to hate what You hate. I ask that You would cause us to love people, to hate sin, to cling close to You and to grip You with our lives. Oh God, You are gracious and loving. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I just ask that as we take the Lord's Supper, You would do a work in our hearts. I ask, oh God, that You would move it from academic to a battle in the heart. And You would move us to run away from sin into the loving arms of Jesus who gave His life for us. So now work in these times in Jesus' name. Amen.